0: Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a genetic counselor explains what role genetics may play in prostate cancer.
1: We look for successive generations with prostate cancers on either side of the family.
0: A psychologist shares what we can learn from the advice he gives stock traders and portfolio managers at financial institutions.
2: What is the person doing right? What are they doing in, a, in an adaptive way? when the problems are not occurring, because many times when the problems aren't there, you can find the kernels of solutions.
0: And a doctor of physical therapy tells how her practice is helping people with Parkinson's
3: disease. What we do know is early diagnosis in terms of managing Parkinson's can also
0: make a huge difference. All that, plus a selection from The Healing News, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink air, your chance to explore health, science and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today we'll talk with a psychologist who coaches stock traders and portfolio managers at financial institutions. Then, we'll hear how physical therapy can help people with Parkinson's disease. But first, a genetic counselor provides information about the genetics of prostate cancer. Prostate cancer has a strong genetic component, and here to help explain how that impacts a man's risk is Dr. Gloria Morris. She's a medical oncologist at the Upstate Cancer Center who specializes in cancer risk assessment and genetic testing for hereditary cancers. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Morris. Thank you. Now, what percentage of prostate cancers are
1: hereditary? There is actually only a very small percentage of all cancers which are hereditary. And what is interesting is that even though prostate cancer is among the most common and most commonly diagnosed cancer in men, very analogous to breast cancer being the most common in women, only 10% of men with aggressive forms of prostate cancer may have a hereditary component or may have inherited the predisposition by inheriting a gene mutation, specifically in genes which also overlap to cause breast cancers. And so when we have learned this over the really past just few years, a lot of this overlaps to discuss with families the risks of both breast and prostate cancers in many, many instances.
0: So a man who has a hereditary prostate cancer might have inherited it from his father or his mother.
1: His father or his mother. And that is actually one of the very specific criterion for referring a a man with prostate cancer, because we look for successive generations with prostate cancers on either side of the family, maternal or paternal.
0: Okay. Now, if you have the mutation, does that mean that you're going to get
1: the disease? Excellent question. And many patients do ask that for sure. It does not mean that a person is doomed to uh, develop prostate cancer, but it is a much better piece of information in order to get early, earlier screening and screening more often. So earlier surveillance is a wonderful benefit to stay ahead of any possible prostate cancer risk, especially for men who have a family history of prostate cancer and or are discovered to have inherited a gene mutation that could lead to prostate cancer.
0: If you have a gene mutation, does that mean you
1: would pass it on to your children,
0: necessarily? or
1: You could, you yes. You could. And because the inheritance pattern for these genes are in what we know as an autosomal dominant inheritance pattern, it means that in our numbered pairs of chromosomes, we inherit usually one copy that is normal from one parent and one copy that might be mutated. And when those chromosomes split, uh, when we pass on half our genes to each child, that is where a random 50-50 chance of passing on that mutation comes in. And so there's a lot of statistics that we can apply in the clinic, but it also gives very direct uh, recommendations and suggestions to have all first-degree relatives of a person with uh, hereditary form of prostate cancer tested for that same mutation. How many
0: genes are there that we know are tied to prostate cancer and, and or breast cancer?
1: How many genes are we talking about? Roughly, there are about 8 to 10 well-known breast cancer genes that can increase the risk of prostate cancer in men if that same mutation is passed on. The ones that have been identified as uh, carried in men who have aggressive prostate cancers, actually are the highest and uh, medium risk breast cancer genes. BRCA2, for example, which is well known in the breast cancer realm, does impose up to a 7% chance of lifetime chance of developing prostate cancer in men, whereas the risk of breast cancer is much higher in a woman, anywhere from 40 to 80% over one's lifetime huh. to develop breast cancer. But it is not to be discounted. Uh, and when I see women with hereditary breast cancers, I always look around as it's a ripple effect when we see patients with a hereditary mutation that there could be other men that could benefit from screening in their family as well. The other m- medium-risk breast cancer genes, if you will, include CHECK2 and ATM, which in its recessive form can cause a severe condition in children of movement disorders and uh, blood vessel problems if it's inherited in two copies. But these medium risk breast cancer genes, if you will, if they're inherited with one copy of a mutation, can slightly elevate the risk of prostate cancers, maybe to about 1 to 2% over one's lifetime. But they have also been found in uh, association studies with studying men who have had an aggressive form of prostate cancer or metastatic prostate cancer. then you could have more than one mutation too, right? That is possible. If that is running in the family, yes. And in those situations, we do run surveillance for patients based on the highest risk gene mutation.
0: Now, how would a man know if he has one of these mutations, if he's Otherwise healthy. In other words, he doesn't. He hasn't been diagnosed with prostate cancer. Um, how would someone find out that they that they possess this mutation?
1: With blood testing and or saliva testing, we can send for DNA extraction and the DNA sequencing of the known hereditary prostate cancer genes. There's usually a good panel of about ten to twelve genes total, um, including also colon cancer genes that could impact prostate cancer. And the way to go about this, though, is to either uh, recognize this if a man has several family members with either prostate cancer before him or multiple family members with other possible associated cancers, like breast cancers, ovarian cancers in the family. All of these cancers do overlap to possibly elevate a prostate cancer risk. So the awareness of family history, as well as going over family history with a referring physician, is really the best way to be evaluated to see if a man carries a hereditary mutation for so prostate cancer
0: if you've got this in your family it's maybe a discussion with your primary care provider to find out yes but what about the commercial um like 23 and Me, the gene testing places that you see advertising commercially do they test for these specific mutations
1: it's a great question because they those kits may test for only portions of genes, which really need to be clinically confirmed. And specifically, we do know that the 23andMe, for example, may test for only three spots in the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes, of which there are hundreds of different mutations that are really clinically relevant. And so... Going to a, an established clinical cancer genetic program anywhere uh, nationally will allow a man to have a very comprehensive sequencing panel uh, done to define those genes in, in their full capacity. It is interesting that those um, hotspots, if you will, in some of the commercial kits are those that are relevant for those of specific ethnic backgrounds. And that also comes into play when we do assess people for the possibility of hereditary cancers. Specifically, those of Ashkenazi Jewish inheritance do have a higher likelihood to harbor BRCA1 and BRCA2 mutations, for example, you know of which the BRCA2 gene could impact prostate cancer risk more so.
0: You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with medical oncologist Dr. Gloria Morris, who specializes in cancer risk assessment and genetic testing for hereditary cancers at the Upstate Cancer Center. So, what happens if a man who's found who has prostate cancer and breast cancer in his family, if he finds out that he has a hereditary gene mutation? What then? What happens? What do you recommend for someone at that point?
1: We do recommend early screening. It's very interesting because many of the national consensus groups that place a certain age on the initiation of PSA screening and digital rectal exam for the detection of possible uh, uh, risk of prostate cancer or the need for a biopsy, for example, may be seeking to move that screening to later in life, around age 50, we would recommend, based on national guidelines, to begin screening earlier than that. Uh, traditionally it has for someone been, who tests who's got the gene for someone who's got the gene okay. and specifically uh, it is in national guidelines now to recommend screening starting at least at at or under the age of 45 for those men who harbor a BRCA2 mutation or another very specific prostate cancer gene hoxb13 and also brca BRCA2's partner palb2 which also stands for partner and localizer of BRCA2. Those are the three gene mutations that we would specifically want to make sure that those men are having regular and annual PSA screenings as opposed to the average uh, person could have a little bit less stringent screening.
0: So what if this man has children already? Do his children need to be... um tested to see whether they have the gene at, as children or?
1: That's a great question, too, because we do discuss the age at which children should be tested for a variety of different cancer mutations. And typically, with any of the adult onset cancers, for adult onset uh, cancers and gene mutations that could cause adult onset cancers, we do recommend testing anytime time over the age of 21. There's a lot of psychological impacts of carrying a gene mutation. There's protection about, uh, there's protective laws about uh, health insurance uh, carriage for those who harbor gene mutations. So we do try to reassure people that that's not going to, uh, that should not impact any of their decisions to get tested. But in terms of reproductive risk, this would not uh, impact any uh, family decisions. However, understanding the ramifications you know over the age of 21 is a good idea if any of these gene mutations might also impact gastrointestinal cancer risk we would want to make sure that Uh, patients as individuals would be willing to plan ahead for the next couple decades to start early screening with their physicians. And so we do wait until age 21 to start to test for these prostate cancer genes and gene mutations.
0: And if the man um, has the prostate cancer gene, would female relatives of his um, need to maybe get earlier mammograms and screenings for breast cancer as well?
1: That's a great question as well. I would test them first to see if they also harbor that gene mutation and then also assess their risk of sporadic breast cancer even if they don't carry the gene mutation because it's still possible that they may not have inherited the gene mutation and very specific mammogram schedules can be recommended for them. But it is of utmost importance to test them anyway, so that we can find out where on the age continuum they might need to start good screening for themselves as well.
0: It sounds like this would be a case for some expertise from you or or one of your colleagues. Tell us how the Upstate Cancer Center for Hereditary Testing works. Can someone refer themselves or do they have their primary care doctor refer them in?
1: It's really both because we want to accommodate people as best as possible, and we really want to make sure that testing is available for everyone, or even an evaluation to see if they meet criteria for testing. That, in and of itself, can really lead even to a lot of reassurance, even if they don't meet criteria. We can even screen for that, even by telephone, if if we have to. Okay. And so self-referral is welcome. We do appreciate also being able to communicate with their primary doctors or other oncologists, if the case is, to make those surveillance recommendations in the case of a positive gene mutation, for example, because it then becomes the need to develop a team of doctors to uh, to have a person um, screened for prevention. Uh, but both are welcome. Well, we'll make sure to put a link on the healthlinkonair.org
0: website to the uh, Upstate Cancer Center for Hereditary Testing. Yes, that would be great. My guest has been Dr. Gloria Morris, a medical oncologist who specializes in cancer risk assessment and genetic testing for hereditary cancers. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, Healthlink On Air. Coming up next, what can you learn from a psychologist who coaches stock traders and financial portfolio managers? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Can brief psychotherapy improve your performance at work or in your personal life? Today, I'm talking with a psychologist you might know from his books, Forbes Magazine column, blog, and podcast devoted to the psychology of trading. Dr. Brett Steenbarger is a performance coach for portfolio managers and traders at financial organizations, and he's also a teaching professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Upstate. He's with me by phone today. Thank you, Dr. Steenbarger.
2: Well, thank you very much, Amber.
0: Now, the bio on your blog says that you provide coaching, not individual therapy, and that you emphasize solution-focused therapies for the mentally well. Can you describe what that means?
2: Yes, it, it's an important distinction, and I think it's a good place for us to start. Uh, traditional psychotherapy is really designed to help people with enduring problems. That they've encountered in their lives. They could be emotional problems, behavioral problems, so forth, but something in their history has created conflicts and problems and those continue uh, to plague them in, in their current lives. When we talk about coaching or counseling, we're really talking about dealing with current and normal expectable developmental challenges that people face uh, that aren't necessarily long-term problems and conflicts that people have had. So if someone has, for instance, problems adjusting to a new job, uh, that, that's a, a coaching issue, a counseling issue, not a psychotherapy issue. Mm-hmm. Now, the solution focused approach is one that takes a look at people's strengths and looks to maximize those. So, in a solution focused mode, you don't talk just about a person's problems. You talk about when those problems are not occurring and what is the person doing right? What are they doing in an adaptive way when the problems are not occurring? Because many times, when the problems aren't there, you can find the kernels of solutions.
0: Interesting. Now, your audience typically are traders from Wall Street, right?
2: Yes, traders are from various parts of the financial world. And some of them work in hedge funds. Some of them work in asset management firms. Some of them are overseas in Europe and Asia. Some are in the U.S., yeah, so it's a real variety of people in the financial world.
0: Now, I'm thinking some of our, our listeners, you know, who aren't traders are still going to be able to apply some of what we talk about to their lives, even if they have nothing to do with that environment. Um,
2: That's exactly right, Amber. And, and I gets back to your introduction. It's all about performance. And uh, if we think about ourselves in terms of what we try to do well that's performance we might be trying to perform better as a parent we might be trying to perform better in our workplace Uh, there are so many different areas in which we are engaged in performance and so these techniques these short-term techniques can be very helpful for uh, improving any aspect of performance
0: when you talked about or defined solution-focused therapy, is that the same thing as positive psychology?
2: That's a really good question, and there, there is a tremendous overlap between the two. They evolved separately. Uh, positive psychology has come, uh, excuse me, out of the um, work of uh, Dr. Martin Seligman, and really is uh, focused on people's strengths and uh, Examining, understanding people's positive experiences uh, and positive attributes, uh, solution-focused work actually came out of the family therapy literature, and was an attempt to engage in short-term family therapy by leveraging the strengths of the couples and families.
0: Okay. Now, for so they're what...
2: both positively focused. They're, they both are looking to do more of what a person is good at.
0: Okay, and focus on what's working and and kind of downplay what might not be working.
2: Yes, in other words, make the most of what you do well um, instead of just trying to uh, improve what you're not doing well. Those improvements are important, and correcting our errors are certainly important, but the goal is not just to correct our negatives and get to an average point. The goal is really to become... Great as a performer and um, do more of uh, the strengths and the gifts that we've been born with.
0: Okay. Now, you coach people to shift their states of consciousness to rapidly exit um, anxious or impulsive or depressed or guilty frames of mind. How do you tell people to do this?
2: Yes. and, And that whole idea of changing your state of consciousness is very important to psychological change. But let me back up, if I may, Amber, and and speak from my experience as a faculty member at Upstate in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. There are certainly many, many cases where people have anxious states or depressed states, and these have a biological basis. We can inherit tendencies toward those kind of mood problems and behavioral problems. And sometimes in those situations, a short-term therapy is not enough and coaching is not enough. And that's why we have uh, medications, uh, psychiatric treatments that are uh, very safe and not habit-forming that can help us on the biological end. So when people have anxious and depressed states, it's often good to first get a workup from a qualified medical professional and make sure that it's not something that may have that underlying biological substrate. So
0: that's a good point. I was wondering how do you tell if it's biological or or not, but you need sort of professional help with that.
2: Yeah, and and, uh, I coordinated the student counseling for many years at at Upstate, and that was a key uh, distinction I had to make. When we see a lifelong history of a problem and when there is a family history of that same problem, we really want to suspect that there might be something biological going on. On the other hand, if there has not been a lifelong history, if this is more of a recent phenomenon – and uh, there's no family history of that. Then that's more situational. And it's in those uh, uh, situational uh, problems that we find the short-term approaches uh, to uh, coaching help being most helpful.
0: This is Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm your host Amber Smith, and I'm talking with psychologist Brett Steenbarger, a teaching professor in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Upstate. Well, is it hard to learn how to, if if you've got a situational um, anxiety, let's say, is it hard to learn how to change that quickly?
2: It's um, not necessarily hard to learn how to change it. It's hard to sustain the changes. What we learn from the research literature in uh, psychotherapy in general is that it's fairly easy to make changes, not so easy to... Changes. The relapse is common, uh, as we talk about in the alcohol field. But to get back to the earlier question about the states of consciousness, what we need to do is shift our thinking and, and shift the way we process information about ourselves when we are in getting into these anxious or depressed states. There are um, meditation techniques that can be very useful for this. There are techniques in what is called behavioral and cognitive therapies that can be very useful. So, for instance, a person who has a tendency to be very hard on themselves and get down will learn to keep a cognitive journal and write down their negative thought patterns, and then will actually challenge those patterns in a very emotional way, just like they're engaging in a debate. And That's that shift in state. So now the enemy is not themselves, so to speak. The enemy is their negative thinking patterns, and they're challenging those negative thinking patterns just as if someone else was saying those things to them. And it's in that um, energy of challenging those negative patterns that people are able to make changes and sustain them.
0: Well, I'm imagining just writing it down, the, the act of doing that might be helpful too to sort of distance yourself and look at it a little more objectively.
2: Great point. And it also is a way of increasing our mindfulness, if you think about it, that we become more self-aware when we write down our thinking. And we can ask ourselves more mindful questions like, hmm, would I be saying this to someone else? who is going through the same situation? You know, if, if this person I love, if my child were going through this, would I be talking that way to my own child? Well, if not, why should I talk to myself that way? Suddenly you become your own observer and, it, and that shift of frame helps you process information in a different way.
0: Interesting. Well, I know you've looked and compared um, peak performers with average performers. Have you found that peak performers are better at shifting their states of consciousness quickly?
2: Yes, and I would say more generally, they're better at working on themselves. Uh, the, the peak performers in any field, and this certainly is, is true in the financial field, they, they keep score. They, they track what they're doing and how they're doing it, and they set goals, and they make steady, focused improvements. There's a term in the psychology literature called deliberate practice. Uh, and, And what that really means is that you are practicing very specific skills make very targeted changes, and you're sustaining that over time. And that's what we see Olympic athletes do. That's what we see successful portfolio managers do. And I think it applies to our personal areas of performance. Like I said, at work or at at home, if we're trying to be a better spouse and partner, if we're trying to be a better parent, um, we target these areas for change and very uh, systematically, in a structured way, work on those and learn from what we do well and improve what we didn't do so well.
0: Now, traders, I I imagine traders working in high-stress environments so, do do you have advice about managing stress? Do you get asked that often?
2: Yes, I, I, I'm asked that a lot, and and yes, it is very stressful. They're uh, doing what they do to, to make money, and financial markets are challenging, and so it can be very stressful. When and they and they uh, never
0: uh, they never close either, right? The markets in well,
2: when... yes, and that's a really good point for those who are trading. Uh, Asset classes around the world, uh, which would be more of a portfolio management. Uh, yes, they have to be aware of what's going on in Europe and Asia, and, and so that poses a unique set of stresses, just in terms of time demand. Um, sort of like a physician who's on call, you know, yeah, uh, for right. long periods of time. So yes, and, and the the approach that I uh, talk about uh, with folks is to make sure that they have multiple areas of life that are providing them with psychological well-being. And that's, this gets into the positive psychology that you were talking about. There are four areas of psychological well-being. The first is happiness, joy, doing things that are fun. The second is fulfillment, doing things that are meaningful to us. The third is energy, doing things that invigorate us. It could be cognitively, in terms of stimulating us intellectually. It could be physically, in terms of physical exercise. And the fourth area is relationships, doing things with people we're close to and uh, building those relationships. Those four areas contribute to our psychological well-being. And so we want to have things in our lives at all times that – fire on those cylinders that give us the happiness and the fulfillment and the energy and the positive relationships and so when we have those positives in our lives the research tells us that that balances the stresses that we face so that yes we face stress but it doesn't become distress the stress doesn't make us depressed and anxious because we have these other positive things in our lives that are giving us energy.
0: Wow. Well, that's good to know. Is your, are your services in less demand when the markets are, are doing well?
2: That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> excuse me. I would say that the services are most in demand when markets are quite volatile. When you have prices moving a lot, when there's a great deal of uncertainty, in the economic environment, uh, I think out of that uncertainty, people tend more to reach out for help. And so I do see some correlation that way.
0: That's interesting. well you i want to I want to thank you so much for your time. My guest is well, thank been- you
2: for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. To share perspectives with the upstate community. I've been part of that community since 1985 and, and value it tremendously.
0: My guest has been psychologist Dr. Brett Barger. He's a teaching professor in Upstate's Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air how physical therapy is helping those with Parkinson's disease. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Parkinson's disease is a degenerative neurological disease and its incidence is increasing. Here, with some important information about how its progression can be delayed, is Dr. Amy DeBlois. She's a board certified neurology physical therapist. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. DeBlois. Thank you, Amber. So, you worked clinically uh, in neurological physical therapy for 14 years before joining the faculty here at Upstate in the Department of Physical Therapy Education in 2014. Did many of your patients have Parkinson's disease?
3: Uh, yes, and doing that clinical work for 14 years, I worked in different settings as well. So I worked on acute care within the hospital, where we definitely saw individuals with Parkinson's disease, and then in inpatient rehab, as well as outpatient. So I um, many other neurological diagnoses, but definitely Parkinson's
0: disease. And it's a pretty common, I mean, you hear a, b- a lot about it. A lot yes. of people are affected by this. Yes, so. uh,
3: approximately 60,000 new cases per year, which is expected to increase and almost double by 2040 with our aging population.
0: I was going to say, just because people yes. are getting older and it's a disease that affects people who are older. Mostly. That's correct, yes. So how does a person typically learn that they have Parkinson's disease. Is it something where they start noticing symptoms or? Yeah. So typically it's
3: what we call motor symptoms. So an outward appearance of uh, some pretty cardinal typical symptoms. So a tremor um, that most people would associate with uh, Parkinson's disease, typically a resting tremor um, in one hand or a foot. It can also be within the face. Um, Also, um, what we call bradykinesia, which is a slowness of movement. Uh, So when somebody wants to stand up quickly, um, their body just won't go at the speed that they were looking for it to go. Um, Another uh, common symptom is postural instability, so problems with balance that may also play into difficulties with walking. Um, We we describe freezing of gait, so they kind of get stuck to the floor. Um, or they take very small shuffling steps, so changes Hmm. with their walking. Um, And also rigidity, stiffness, stiffness within the spine, Um, stiffness within um, the extremities. And that is probably one of the um, most common uh, reasons somebody would seek out some care from their um, primary care physician is the stiffness or the tremor typically And that may be kind of the earliest symptoms. And it may be that somebody else also notices it um, in terms of that clinical presentation, a family member or
0: something like that. Some of the things that you described, the postural instability and the slowing bradykinesia, the slower or in the freezing of the gait, things like that. Those could be other things too, right? Definitely, okay. definitely.
3: So if those if those present, there are many other types of movement disorders that have tremors. Um, many other reasons to have postural and inst- you know balance problems. Um, so we would re- definitely recommend you know going to your primary care physician. If they suspect um, Parkinson's disease or another neurological disorder, then a referral to a neurologist should be made. Do you know are there tests that are done to say yes, it's Parkinson's or yeah. no, it's not? So that's a very good question. And at this point in time, there's no you know definitive you know biomarker test, MRI, um, blood test, nothing at this point that we can definitively say you have Parkinson's disease. So we say that it is a clinical diagnosis based okay. on the symptoms that individuals have, those motor symptoms. That being said, what research is now showing is that there are a variety of non-motor symptoms that may be present for years before the motor symptoms occur. Really? So things like changes in smell, usually a loss of smell. Issues with blood pressure. Um, We we put these under autonomic changes, which is a a type of um, one part of your nervous system that Mm -hmm. can control... Um, Body functions, such as blood pressure, such as sleep, so changes in sleep patterns, um, restless sleep, insomnia, things like that, Um, so fall under that non-motor presentation. Um, Depression, changes in
0: thinking, changes in memory. So, really, putting this whole picture together helps uh, a clinician decide whether it is likely or not. Yes. Yes. Wow.
3: And the other thing that I would definitely like to say is knowing more about those other non motor symptoms that may be present years before the motor, clinicians, you know, physical therapists, uh, other healthcare practitioners, nurses, physicians should try and be aware of those other symptoms that might be present because what we do know is early diagnosis in terms of managing Parkinson's can also make a huge difference.
0: Do we know what causes Parkinson's?
3: Yeah, uh, there, it's multifactorial. So we know that there can be a genetic component. So you know, if you have a family member that has Parkinson's disease, that would increase your chances of that. We do know that there may be uh, links to um, pesticides Um, Different types of heavy metals, so perhaps work that individuals have done, um, engineers or farmers may be more um, likely to contract um, Parkinson's disease. Links to head injury, so um, boxers, multiple head injuries um, over the years can contribute to that diagnosis. And then there are some that we just don't know. Um, and the you know it, it's so multifactorial and that's part of the difficulty of you know figuring out who is going to um, contract this progressive disease
0: You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host Amber Smith and I'm talking with Amy DeBlois. She's a board certified neurologic physical therapist who's part of the faculty in the Department of Physical Therapy Education here at Upstate and we're talking about Parkinson's disease. Now, at what point could someone with Parkinson's be referred to a physical therapist?
3: I will say, typically, um, once they have that diagnosis, um, traditionally, they are not referred to physical therapy until there is an issue. They fall. They break something. right? Um, And what we're advocating now is that that's too late. We want to see them as soon as that diagnosis is made. So partnering with primary care physicians, neurologists, movement disorder specialists to at least have them in for an initial assessment. Uh, We have a battery of tests that we would um, be able to um, put them through. Um, And perhaps they don't need restorative physical therapy at that point in time, but we can make recommendations for exercise. Aerobic exercise is really that
0: key, uh, especially in early diagnosis. So I was going to ask, what can physical therapy offer, Um, but movement types of things? Movement. Movement is key. And if you're talking about someone who has issues with balance, um, all of the things that you described, that's not as simple as just sending them out to take a class in something, right?
3: Well, so there are community exercise classes that are geared specifically towards individuals with Parkinson's disease. But the individuals that are uh, running those classes are well-trained and well-versed in the, the parameters that should be included. Okay. There is no one specific exercise that is the end-all be-all. It is something that gets individuals moving, something that they enjoy typically that something that includes socialization, which is what many of us um, appreciate when we're exercising.
0: So group versus personal yes, training. Yes.
3: There's definitely some research to support um, better adherence to exercise when you're doing the, a group type of exercise. And the key is moderate to high intensity. So getting the heart rate up.
0: So moderate to high. So not the low intensity things is not Correct. as meaningful. Correct.
3: Okay. Uh, so based on Animal model research, right? So, little mice and things like that, Uh, we know that we have to um, elicit higher heart rates. Um, And uh, that hasn't been, well, in animal research, they have been able to show um, that can actually delay progression of Parkinson's disease. We haven't been able to make that link in humans at this point in time, Um, but it, it certainly is very promising. Um, so, so yes. So making sure you find something that you enjoy and that you do it at least 150 minutes a week.
0: So a high heart rate what yeah. counts as moderate or high?
3: Yes. So that is where a trained physical therapist or other individuals really needs to take part in helping the individual come up with that exercise program. So we would look at their resting heart rate and determine, um, you know, 60 to 85% of that maximum heart rate and have them exercise at that level. And so with,
0: it might be different for each person. It, it definitely is. Okay.
3: So it does need to be tailored. But with technology these days, you know, Apple watches, Fitbits, you know, every can keep your heart rate so once you're able to figure out what that target heart rate is and it may change over time if somebody has been pretty sedentary the amount of activity to get up into that target heart rate in the beginning may not be a lot but then it needs to be pushed as hopefully they continue to do that Um, and and an individual 150 minutes a week i had said um, previously if if they're new to exercise maybe they're just doing 10 minutes at a time right they can't do 30 minutes a day Um, But in terms of incorporating it into their schedule, you know, maybe eventually they can do 50 minutes at a time. So they just do three days a week, right? So there's many ways you can get to that 150 minutes.
0: Now, I've heard of um, yoga and Tai Chi as being good for balance, for improving balance. Sure, Um, But those aren't really for heart rate. Correct, correct.
3: Now they may be very important to work on some of those postural instability issues that individuals may have.
0: So this uh, would be an addition to this would be an
3: addition to that. But that being said, there may be individuals who may be able to get up to those target heart rates doing Tai Chi, it would really depend on the individual.
0: Or the type of Tai Chi or how
3: advanced that you're doing. Exactly. Also, um, uh, things like dancing. Um, has really you know there's some local groups here that do dance programs specific with individuals with Parkinson's disease and uh, some individuals because of their balance deficits might have to do it from a seated position Um, and um, you know we're we're able to modify some of those things to make sure they're safe still with that end goal of being able to get up to to standing and, and really get that heart rate up.
0: So I know there's a lot of measuring devices and Fitbits and things out there, but I've always heard that um, breaking a sweat is an indicator. Is is that true that you're working enough to get... Some benefits? So for most
3: people, yes. Um, the issue with individuals with Parkinson's disease, I had mentioned that word autonomic earlier. So that system that can control when we're sweating, control your blood pressure, that can be affected with Parkinson's disease. So so really heart rate would be the best indicator. That's what we would advise people to go by. If people don't have access to the fancy equipment, we can certainly teach someone how to calculate their heart rate um, just
0: um, by checking their pulse. Okay. Okay. And in terms of, you know, moderate intensity, can walking fall into that? Yes, for sure. Okay. Walking,
3: uh, stationary bike. Okay. um, Swimming, uh, biking hiking ground. Some, yeah. some
0: people who haven't really done a lot of exercise, this could be a whole new thing for them. And starting out, it can be intimidating. It
3: can be intimidating. I think especially when a lot of times you see um, in the media, all, you know, like the the boxing classes and things like that, where, you know, people really are working up a sweat. Um, individuals at home, they see that and they might think, I can't do that, right? Um, well, I can tell you they can do that. There's support in those community programs. Uh, Somebody can walk in there with a walker or in a wheelchair, and they can modify those exercises and and make progress, which is really, really exciting.
0: So I know it's only animal research, but um, tell us again, This has been shown to slow the progression of Parkinson's symptoms? So
3: it has been shown, we haven't been able to to actually show that yet. Um, What we have been able to show more recently, so 2017, 2018, is some changes within the brain. Um, We call that neuroplasticity, that um, we have been able to show certain factors. They're called neurotrophic factors, so good for the nerves, um, and one of those is something called BDNF. It's a, it's a type of factor that helps the nerves and prevents them from, from dying. And we can show increases in those protective factors with exercise. That's not just for Parkinson's disease. That's for many degenerative diseases. So even something like Alzheimer's, um, we can show that exercise can actually help. It can be neuroprotective
0: well in addition to all of the cardiac related yes, benefits yes exactly
3: so. yeah so for many reasons exercise is is
0: medicine okay now i plan to on the healthlinkonair.org website will link to some of the community programs that you wanted to advertise yes
3: uh, you know i think one of the largest uh, in the community um the parkinson.org which is the parkinson's foundation and they can um connect individuals with many uh, programs um, and through many of the different hospitals. Some are here at Upstate, some are um, with other individuals in the community. And, you know, I don't want to single anything out because what works for one doesn't work with en- for another. And, um, and you and,
0: know. And if one doesn't, if you try one and you don't like it, try something yes, else, Yes, right? for sure, for okay.
3: sure. And so many of the programs also encourage family members to attend, um, as a matter of fact, they will attend and during the time the individuals within doing the exercise program, they have a support group for uh, the family members. So, um, so they are really, you know, trying to be pretty comprehensive in terms of the services that they're providing.
0: Well, that's a great idea. So Parkinson.org. Yes, correct. Okay.
3: Parkinson's Foundation. And uh, last year, I believe, was the um, second annual um, moving day that uh, was held here in Syracuse in June uh, at OCC. And uh, just trying to bring awareness to moving, moving for individuals with Parkinson's disease is so important. And they hosted individuals, you know, yoga, as you were stating before, dancing, um, you know, different types of the um, boxing programs that we have here in this community. Great. So it's a great resource to, to reach out to. Well,
0: that's some very good information. Thank you so much for being here. My guest has been Upstate Doctor of Physical Therapy, Amy DeBlois. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection.
4: Elizabeth Brule Farrell sent us a poem entitled The Other Woman, but it's not quite what you might be expecting. The Other Woman. I admit I gave her no thought, no consideration, no empathy, when I, push in, when I positioned my body in her family field. stretched out to mimic her pose painted by Wyeth when I was a young, healthy woman, deciding it would be fun, maybe even provocative, to have my husband photograph me in Christina's position. A naive gesture, for I easily got up afterwards, walked through the wildflowers, not understanding what it must have been like for her each day, refusing help, refusing to use a wheelchair. I framed the image and hung it on the wall almost with an indifference to what she meant to Andrew and would in time come to mean in my present life, the other woman whose struggle I no longer wanted to mimic as the reality of my own limbs began to weaken, too late to ask her forgiveness and wanting the courage she dared to show.
0: This has been Upstate's Health Link on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on Healthlink on Air, if you have kidney stones, what are your options? If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.